looking tonight at Job, Job tonight, chapter 12, and we're looking at several passages in Job tonight. I'm doing a 10-week series on different Bible creatures. This is our fifth. We've done the dog and the eagle and fish and done different things. We're going to, my favorite five are the last five. I'm saving the best for last. Ants, the Bible says, consider the ant and the camel and the vulture. And one of my favorites is the, the flea. You're going to be interested to hear about the little tiny flea. They're really something. And the bee is one of them we'll look at. And I have PowerPoint on some of these. So tonight will be simple. And uh, this matter of the moth. My mom would say, a miller got in, a miller got in. And she'd chase this thing around the house because she understood what it was like to have clothes eaten up by millers. And I have had three suits that have been eaten by millers at my house right now, I had to call an exterminator in, didn't know what was going on, to kill whatever it was eating my suits. Now, I have plenty of suits. The one I have on right now was made for me, tailored in Okinawa, Japan in 1993. So, you know, if you don't like it, hey, the poor old suits hung around for a long time. We have to respect age. Um, but moths, what, what about moths? It's kind of a crazy thing, character sketch to do. But it, the moth is mentioned ten times in the Bible, and almost every time in a negative way. So tonight we're going to look at the moth. Job chapter 12, stand when you find it, chapter 12, verses 7 and 8. Job 12, 7 and 8. <clears throat> but ask now the beast, and they shall teach thee and the fowls of the air, and they shall tell thee. Or speak to the earth, and it shall teach thee. And the fishes of the sea shall declare unto thee. Scripture says to ask them, they'll teach you. And we'll learn other verses later, which mention specifically various Bible creatures. God bless us as we take a look in the book for a walk in the world. And this little sermon, Lord, this little message, we pray that it's encouraging and helpful for us as we make the practical application later. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In Job 19, he mentions the moth. He says, how much less than them that dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is of the dust, which are crushed before the moth. In Job 13, 28, he says, as a rotten thing, consuming as a garment, that is the moth, that is moth eaten. We're told in the New Testament several times about lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth. Uh, lay up treasures in heaven because the moth can't eat your things on the earth and rust doesn't corrupt. And so we know the New Testament speaks of the moth as well. Today we look at the productive moth. Some moths represent, most of them represent carnal Christians. Uh, but the moths mentioned ten times in Scripture. Moths have been used for silk to make silk for thousands of years. Uh, long before Christ even, the Chinese would not allow a person to take a silk moth out of the country. Isn't it something? Try and smuggle a living little silk moth out of the country, they wouldn't let it happen because they used them to make so much money. Uh, there are between, uh, uh, well, let's just say approximately 200,000 different species of moths. We're not going to look at them tonight. Butterflies are close relative are a daytime species where moths are nocturnal. And the English word moth means simply maggot. You can understand uh, why, because they eat, they chew. Uh, several notable moths we can think of. The atlas moth is 10 to 12 inch 
10 to 12 inch, has a 10 to 12 inch wingspan. And the Madagascar sunset moth uh, is one of the most beautiful things they say uh, to see. The grease moth eats fat. Interesting, the word maggot applies there. They're an agricultural pest, actually. Several moths um, eat fabric, uh, eat other things, uh, but actually most moths don't eat anything. They drink nectar. So only a few eat. The gypsy moth is a pest that eats hardwood trees in America. There's a corn ear moth, a cotton ball moth, both agricultural pests. Farmers hate them, have to treat their crops because of them. There's an Indian meal moth that is, eats a lot of grain. They have a lot of problem, problems with it over in India. There's a moth uh, called a codling moth, a pest. It eats apples and pears and walnuts. There's a wax moth, a pest of beehives. They bother the bees. Uh, so there's just a vast amount of moths, and, and they do a lot of things. They're a pest of vegetation, crops. We know that. There's really not much positive about the moth, but we will make an application later today. Um, there's obvious, obvious evidence that the ultrasound is, is that bats put out, uh, causes moths to make a lot of maneuvers. But moths normally would fly right in, in a straight line because they, they fly depending on the light of the moon. But when man-made lights are used, it confuses them, and that's why you'll see a moth just going crazy on your front porch. Um, uh, they're just very elusive and, and pretty interesting to, to watch them fly, but we know that uh, there's actually a museum in Germany where the largest collection of moths is found. I would go to a museum to look at moths, but there is one there. Um, they, they're very uh, resilient creatures. It takes several days of freezing temperatures below 18 degrees to actually kill a moth. Most can survive the winter. They can survive several days of freezing cold weather. Some moths are helpful. There's a Bong Kong moth that's known as a food source. Indigenous people in Australia eat those. We know that Yukon moth of Mexico is a very beautiful special moth. They lay eggs and flowers and help uh, pollinate uh, an interesting moth as well. Um, plants accept moths for pollination purposes. Uh, and the smell of the yucca plant gives the moth its direction. Sometimes scientists believe the moth navigates, we already said, by the moonlight, and uh, that, that they plummet and spiral down to earth when they're uh, confused. Uh, but man's lights never measure up to God's, I guess we could say that. The moth egg is similar to a bird egg. They have a, a shell, they contain a live embryo. They hatch according to the temperature. Some hatch right away and other right away and some wait several days. Eggs are usually laid on a food source so the young can have something to eat when they're born. The larva of the caterpillar grows, the skin uh, molts four times, the larva spins a cocoon of silk, enclosing itself with fiber. Two glands emerge from one hole on its head and releases a liquid that dries up the threads. The second gland releases a, a gummy substance that cements these threads together, and they make their little house this little cocoon. And uh, the, the, the cocoon weighs about a quarter of the weight of a moss body. Interesting stuff. I had a good time studying for this, learning 
uh, more about science. The pupa appears dead, but there's an internal change in the life of that little pupa. And we call that a metamorphosis. And that thing that appears dead uh, has life. And we'll look at some scripture on that in a moment. Um, Basic Youth Conflicts writes uh, interesting stuff about the moth. So does a guy by the name of Bob Devine. Uh, and they talk about how they did an experiment with moths. They had a moth that was in the cocoon, and the moth uh, wanted to get out, and so they tore it open, and the moth never developed, and it ended up dying. And the the the, the experiment was to show that as they are coming out of the cocoon, they build strength. And it, it, this building this strength helps them each day to fight and to get out of the cocoon. And you don't help them by opening up the cocoon form because part of their process of growing is uh, getting stronger by fighting to get out of that cocoon. We'll make an application there in a few moments as well. Uh, and I'll, I'll go back to that in a moment. But the struggle to get free causes fluids to fill the vessels in their little bodies and their wings are fully developed that way. And then the sun exposure dries the wings out and then off they fly. The silkworm uh, is born. It's an it's, it's, it, uh, amazing miracle that, that the silkworm, they produce silk. Um, and this has been going on according to Revelation 18.12. We know the silkworm's been in existence for years. In the United States alone, just one-year stats, $250 million worth of silk is produced in our country. That was a 2002 stat, and I didn't take the time to find out what it is today, but I mean silkworms are very valuable. And uh, so in that way, the spirit-filled Christian is like the moth. We can be productive people. Turning your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. A great word that all of us are familiar with. And I'm always amazed at um, science and all the things uh, that we learn scientifically. One day I will preach a message um, and uh, from Romans on, you know, the voice of creation and all the things in creation that point to God. And that would be something you'd want to hear preached. Don't know when I'll do that. Been praying about when to do that. But we, we know that God's creation is all made for a purpose and all should point back and give glory to Him. You know, uh, when He fulfilled the scripture of riding on the foal and fulfilled Zechariah 9.9, His enemies complained that the people cried out and He said if they didn't cry out, the stones would cry out. The Bible says all creation groans waiting for the Lord's return, for Him to take the curse away. You know, the lion has to, the lamb has to fear the lion. And we have to fear the moth getting in our closets. And yet, yet we think of all the things that we are, we benefit from moths. You think it's a food source for so many creatures besides flying insects. Bears eat moth larvae. They'll dig and dig and dig and to eat the moth larvae. So they do provide. Um, but I was, I was thinking about the applications here. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Then he says, and be not conformed to this world, 
but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. That word transformed, you want to mark that. That is the Greek word metamorphos. I share Greek words that you're familiar with. That's one you would know. Our English word metamorphos comes from that. It's a miraculous change from within. And the moth is a type of a believer. Because when we are born again, there's a miracle that takes place in our life. We are born again on the inside. It's amazing. I, the, the cocoon, you know, if, if you watch a butterfly or a moth, it goes into that thing, you know, as a caterpillar with, with all these, all this hair. And it comes out flying as a moth or a butterfly. What happened to the, to, you know, where, where did all the hair go? And where, why does it now have all these less legs? It had all those legs. What happened? Now it comes out having just six legs. So you can't explain it. Scientists have to admit there's some things they can't explain. Uh, miracles of nature. And the metamorphosis is a miracle in the life of a moth. It's also a miracle in the life of a person. I remember when I was a teenager, I went to see a video, a movie actually, it's a movie, at a church that had a big movie there, and it is the life of a guy named Nicky Cruz. And I mean, I'm going back a long time, 50 years. And he was a he was a gangster in a Spanish gang, and in, in, I guess in New York somewhere, he had stabbed people to death. And he was just a vicious person. But the movie was about what the man had become, how the Lord saved him and transformed his life. And that was just interesting to me to watch this guy and give his testimony. And I thought, wow, this guy, you know, obviously I believe in capital punishment, but it sure is nice to see somebody saved and then serve after saving. Uh, I had a friend up in uh, Saudi area who had went to jail for second degree murder, and he's now in prison ministry. He'd come by our church and give testimonies. And I thought, isn't that an awesome thing to see the change inside of a man? And nobody can explain the metamorphosis in our lives. But God will take somebody and transform them. And you know what? It's not just our salvation that's the change. Think of all the changes God has made in your life since you've been saved. I would have never, ever thought I would be a preacher, you know. I was on campus, and Steve Redding, my friend down in Atlanta, I walked up the steps. He said, you're going to be a preacher. And I was agitated that he even said that because my mom had been praying for me to go to Christian school and I didn't really want to go. And then this guy says that. And then God put me in a room with Rudy Stembridge, Mel, and he was as strict as strict could be. And I had my Led Zeppelin music. And I mean, I was as worldly as worldly could be. And I was saved. I was saved. But God hadn't done in my life what he needed to do yet. I mean, he had done what he needed to do, but I needed more work and it was just waiting on his timing. And I, I, I've told you this story, I think, about eight or nine months ago. I went to Varsity Victor's Training Union in Phillips Chapel. And about 300 kids would pack in there. We didn't want to go to Main Training Union, so we'd all go there and watch Christian movies and do different things. And um, so they had the time of elections, and I told you this. Somebody said, I nominate Dan Mao as vice president, and I stood up and declined just as fast as he said I nominate him. I mean, and then he said, well, so the, one of the guys said, well, Dan, it's just doing the behind-the-scenes stuff. You don't have to get up in front of people. I said, okay, the next week the president eloped. 
And they told me I'm now president. I said, what do I have to do? You have to get speakers and movies and do all that. I said, fine, I'm not going up there. So I had the treasurer or whatever do all that. Well, then I couldn't get speakers all the time. And I would have to, you know, they'd say, well, you need to prepare something and do something. And I'm like, this isn't fair. I didn't, I didn't ask for this. And I remember being in the bathroom 30 minutes every Sunday night before that started, saying, God, help me get out of this. <laughs> Stomach cramps, you know, nervous anxiety and all that. I don't need to say any more than that. Too much information, right? But I'm sitting there thinking, what in the world do I do? And I began to study. And when I started to study and get a commentary here and there, I started to like what I was studying and learning. Before you know it, I loved and loved and loved to preach and teach, and I've been doing it all these years. I went up, my wife, we were amazed. <clears throat> I was at a, got home from a furlough and had a voicemail on my answer machine. I pressed it. Dan, this is Jerry Falwell. I'd like to have you come up on a Sunday and speak at the church. And I said, someone's playing a joke. And it was Jerry Falwell. I called the number, and he had had some of his people in my church in Japan, and he wanted to have me come up and speak. And I got up there and to speak, and, you know, some pastor friends went, and my wife went, and some Christians that were saved in our ministry came, and it was really nice to get together. And I was able to preach on a Sunday night in this great big place, and it was exciting. And Brother Doug said to me, are you nervous? I said, no, I'm excited. I absolutely love to preach to that point in my life that I love to preach so much that it doesn't matter whether it's two people or 20,000. I don't know how many were there, but it wasn't 20,000. I love to preach God's Word. And the only way that could happen would be God changing me on the inside. From a kid who was looking for a fight pretty much all through my junior high and high school life, even into junior college, I was majoring in criminal justice, and probably the justice system needed to start looking at me. Uh, I was an honor student. Yes, Your Honor. No, Your Honor. Not guilty, Your Honor. I mean, I just had some rough edges. But, you know, what God does in our life, it doesn't just end at salvation. He keeps working, doesn't He? Keeps working. More miracles keep coming. And so I have to thank God for the metamorphosis that He began in my life, you know, back when I was 12, 52 years ago. And yet He's still working on me. Took him just a week to make the sun and the moon, the stars and all that. And then that song goes on to say, but he's still working on me. And so I look over today and I saw a few of these kids today and I thought, boy, God's starting to work. You know, I see Bryce's kids running in the balcony. I giggle and laugh at it. It doesn't bother me a bit, but I think one day he's going to be working on them. He's already starting to develop them, using the parents to reach out to them. And God just keeps working on us and working on us and working on us. As some of you would say, I've seen it in my life, Brother Dan. Not only my salvation, but I've seen God change my way of thinking. I remember we had a, a black fella come to our school, and I told you that story already. I got into it with him. And you'd never thought that I would go to Okinawa or go to Panama, actually, first for 10 years in the military ministry. Start a church there. Didn't know how to start a church, but God knew how. And we started a church and saw it grow to about 150. When we left there, we were able to give the building in Parsonage and another building we had paid for to a missionary to reach the Panamanians. But while I was there, I saw God do a great work. And one of the works he did was with me. I would knock on doors illegally on the base. 
and people would get saved. And there was a time in the start of our church, we had about 50 or 60 people and about 40 of them were black. And it took a work of grace for me to think of those people as souls. I knew they were people. But I'm just saying that when they would get saved, I'd say, what's going on, Lord? I've got this black church. And I'm a white guy, you know? And um, some of my dearest friends in life are black. Some of the most loyal, faithful church people I had are black. And they would tell you, there's no way I'm a racist. They'd say, man, Brother Dan told me about Jesus. Now, eventually, uh, more people joined the church, and we weren't majority black for a long time, but I had one couple come from, from a church in California come, and they were attending, and they quit coming. I went to their house, and they said, we've never been around black people this much. Scared. And I said, you're in the military. Grow up. You didn't say it like that. But God began to work, and I've seen some great things. And in, 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 in my life, there's been a lot of things. Ed Carter, a friend of mine I've had preach in Panama and Okinawa, may be here next week because he's a member of Temple Baptist, a black fella. And if you know about his testimony, he was on the Marshall team when the plane crashed. He didn't get on the flight because his grandmother had a bad dream. She's a Christian, said, don't get on that plane. He didn't get on the plane. And another guy didn't get on the plane by circumstance, and the plane crashed, everyone's dead, except Ed and this other guy. They made that movie, We Are Marshall. Ed wouldn't be in it because of all the language in it. Now, Ed's a real hardcore right-wing guy. He, 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 he loves Dr. Robertson, and he's one of those guys like Dr. Robertson, right down the line, don't vary to the left, don't vary to the right. But he, he was drafted, I think, by the Bills and went, you know, drafted by maybe the Bills and went to the Cowboys training camp or vice versa. But those two places are right, just don't remember which. While he was there, he pulled a hamstring. He was a defensive tackle, and he was a big, massive guy. When he pulled the hamstring, he realized, you know, hey, I'm not supposed to be here. I back up. I got to back up. Because at the plane crash, someone gave him a track, and he read the track and became a Christian. Then when he was in training camp and pulled his hamstring, somebody had told him about Tennessee Temple. He finished his bachelor's. He packed his bag, came to Temple. He earned his master divinity having to take Bible languages, brilliant guy. And I had him preach in Panama and Okinawa. I don't agree with that on everything, but we're buddies. He'll come by my office quite a bit. Every time I see him, I hug him. I remember the first time I saw him in Bilo on Brainerd Road, I made a beeline over to give him a big hug. And I could tell he's startled because, you know, all these people were around, and here we are hugging. I'm kind of a hugger, probably a little too much sometimes. But, uh, you know, he, he, just, he knows I love him. He loves me. I had him preach, as I said, revivals. My point is, only God can work in my heart to make me love Ed Carter that much. And I don't even see him the way I used to see him. I remember at Temple, he'd, he'd speak and he would do revival crusades. What is my point? That he's not finished with any of us. He's done a, began a work in you. You, you. You're born again, maybe, but he's still going to keep working. And you know when he quits... The day you die is when he quits working in you. Anything he's got to change, he'll change when he brings you to heaven. But in route, in that moment, I guess you're completely changed again. But this internal change, this miracle, this metamorphosis. So first of all, like the moth, we're born miraculously. Second of all, like the moth is guided by the light, we are guided by the light. Look at Psalm 119. Psalm 119. 
I'm almost out of time, and I rambled too much. It's already 6 o'clock, but we're going to finish this. You said, well, you were finished when you started, brother. I ain't got anything out of this. It's all right. I'm having a good time. Psalm 119.105, I'm joking. Psalm 119.105, and you know this verse. Great verse. It says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The moth gets its direction from the light. We get our direction from the light of the Word of God. Isn't that great? The Bible's compared to light, to life. So many comparisons about the Bible. But this is where we get our direction. You say, Brother Dan, I don't know what I'm going to do tomorrow. I've got this decision to make. You better read this and pray. You say, I've got this problem in my life. You better read this and pray. You say, I, if something's wrong in my life. Start reading this and pray. You get the point? This is the light. Without this, you don't have direction. He gives us the word. He speaks to us through the word. If you're waiting for an audible voice, you're not going to have one. Sometimes you, you, you get an idea and you know that's from the Lord and that's great. But let me tell you something. You're going to get less ideas when you're not in this book. The more you're in this book, the more ideas you get. Just while I was, a while I've been up here, the Lord laid on my heart what I'm supposed to preach Sunday night. When you're in the Word, He just does stuff like that. Get in the Word. It's the light. It's your direction. It's your direction. When you're rooted and grounded in the Word, you make far less bad decisions. Because you think, oh, there's a biblical principle here. I can't do that. That would violate Scripture. It had helped so much. So first of all, like the moth, we're born miraculously. Second of all, like the moth, we're guided by light. And third, like the moth, we're stronger by trials. Remember the little story about the moth coming out of the cocoon? If you tear the cocoon out and let it out, it's not going to make it. Because as it struggles in its young life, it develops strength to be able to cope in the world. I tell people one of the mistakes we make with our kids is we fight their battles and do everything for them. Heard a funny comedian on Moody, a lady, and she told some funny stories about how, you know, our, these science projects at school. You go to school, and I had four sons, and let me tell you, none of them are creative when it comes to making a science project. And so the first few years of their life, we'd let them do it, and we'd go to We'd go to the school and we'd be going, oh my word, there's this terrible, and look at this other one. They got things, I mean, floating and shooting up and spinning. And then there's my kid's science project, you know? They were probably voted least likely to succeed on that week or something. I mean, it was awful. And so what happened? We started helping them with their science project. We'd get books, and we'd read about how to help them, and pretty soon before you know it, my wife and I are saying to each other, hey, hey, we're doing too much of this. And when they're not even there and you're working on it, you know that's a problem. And that's a joke, but isn't that true? We do so many things for our kids, and what happens? Then they never learn to do it. And I'm the world's worst. This is ridiculous. My kids will tell you this. My boys, one thing they've always said that's ridiculous about their dad is I have never let my boys cut my yard. 
I like the exercise. It's an acre. I push it with a push mower. I've got a bad foot. I hobble out there and do it. Now they're all gone. When I finally need them, they're not there. <laughs> but I like to cut my own grass, and I'm particular about it. I don't know. I'm weird. But, you know, they'll, they talk about it. Dad won't let me cut it. One of them will say, the other, why don't you, Dad's limping. Why haven't you cut the grass? You know Dad. Yeah, we all know Dad. The problem is two of them never learned to change a tire. So you get the call, you know, Dad, I'm broken down. I got a flat tire. What do I do? Oh, my word. Why don't I teach him to change a tire? We do too much for him, and then we wonder what the problem is. We fight their battles. I've already picked on going to, you know, those that go to teachers and complain for their kids' sake. Don't ever do that. And coaching, I've told you that. I just think we fail so many times because we don't let our kids learn the hard lesson. One of my kids in college, uh, and he's a godly man, okay, but in college, he helped Ruth, a friend, with her homework. And he thought you could work on homework together, but he had forgotten the teacher said, I do not allow people to work on homework together. So Ruth turned in the exact same homework as he did, and the teacher questioned him, and he said, yeah, I helped her with it. And he was campused and punished. He had to sit in the front row of chapel with all the students, the bad students. It was embarrassing. And, you know, that's a small thing. But he should have listened to his teacher. I, I, I was a professor there. There's my student, my son in the front row. I had to preach in chapel. There's my son in the front row. But the fact of the matter was, you know, I could not go and defend him and say, you know, you're a stupid professor because that's such a minute thing. He helps someone with their homework and you get him campused because then I would be wrong. Because you see, from her perspective, that was a serious matter. Don't fight your kids' battles. As much as you want to, you can't do it. They are weak as a result of you doing everything for them. My brother Randy was going out drinking. It was late May, early June, and my dad said, we don't drink alcohol in this house. The next time you come home, you're out. Randy came home one night. My dad smelled alcohol, and his bags were on the porch. He had to sleep in his car for a while and get a place. Dad wouldn't let him back in. You know... Whoa, that's so tough of your dad. But we're raising a generation of softies today. We are. Don't touch the cocoon. Let your kid develop and be a strong person. Two uh, verses. Ian Bounds said, a man's looking for better methods. God's looking for better men. We don't have a lot of men these days, and we need to make men out of the ones we have. Let's look at two verses, and we'll close. I know I'm five five minutes late. Uh, we'll look at two verses, James 1.3 and 1 Peter 5.10, and then we'll read these and we'll close. James chapter 1 and verse 3. James 1.3, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. It goes on to say, let patience have her perfect work. But trials develop us spiritually. And you say, what's so important about patience? If you read about adding to your virtue, you know that passage? We don't have time to go all these passages. But it lists a bunch of things, and the crowning one 
when it says add to your virtue, knowledge and knowledge, it goes on. The last one, the crowning virtue is patience. A patient Christian is one that has been through the trials and difficulty. So trials be, help us become patient. The word add to in that passage is the word choreograph. Like when our choir person says, we really need a bass. I heard so-and-so sing the bass. He's coming up and joining the choir. I need his voice. That's what that means. And we're supposed to add to our knowledge and all these things, these virtues it talks about, and the last one to add is patience. Also, 1 Peter 5.10. The next book is 1 Peter. We'll read this, and I'll let you go. 1 Peter like Elizabeth Taylor said to her seventh husband, I won't keep you very long, and she didn't. <laughs> First Peter 5.10, I've kept you too long. But God, the God of all peace, but the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Jesus Christ, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. If you don't suffer in this life, you're not going to be complete. It says, after you suffer, he will work perfection in you, establish you, and strengthen and settle you. So trials are good for us, even though all of us hate trials. We hate trials. Guess what? There's a trial coming in your life. I don't know what it's going to be. But none of us are perfect yet. We will be, so more trials will come our way. And for this church to be stronger and better, we're going to have to face trials. You know, I, we were in Deacon's talking tonight about Frank. What are we going to do if Frank can't teach anymore? He's struggling with his, this thing with his mouth, and he's in his mid-70s, and, and, and he needs help. And what would we do if Frank's such a faithful, good guy? He teaches a class, and his second language is English, you know? And he's one of many in this church that we look at and think, what are we going to do? Brother Jim back there, 90-year-old man, still at Deacon's meeting tonight. We love his wisdom. But when God calls these people into glory, out of this world, it's going to be tough for us to fill their shoes. So we will have trials, and that may not be the trial we'll experience, but... The persecuted church in the New Testament was the strong church. The church with false doctrine was the weak church. Read the epistles of Peter. Well, let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this little creature, miraculously born, following your light, struggling to get strength. Help us, God, to learn from this little creature. Bless now in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.